Welcome to TuneIn YRDSB, inspiring learning through storytelling. Welcome to TuneIn YRDSB. My name is Rebecca Mitchell. I'm the curator of York Region District School Board Museum and Archives. I am very proud today to host a special podcast, recognizing Women's History Month, which takes place in October. This year's theme is Through Her Lens, celebrating the diversity of women. With me now are an incredible cast of guests who are all change makers in our system. All are from diverse backgrounds who are willing to share their personal thoughts and reflections on the importance of celebrating the achievements and accomplishments of women. And just like you, I am so thrilled to be listening in on this conversation. But first, why are we talking about women in history? Well, to give you some background on my story, something that really drew me into the field of history, museums and archives was storytelling. No, it wasn't memorization of dates or events, but really hearing the story of human connection, reading about the adversity, the struggles, but also the resistance and resilience of everyday humans. Through storytelling, I can make connections to the moments and the people in history. In this way, history became personable, relatable, and relevant. However, when I was attending school, and even afterwards when I started working in the museum field, I discovered that as a historian, we really haven't done a very good job of preserving and elevating marginalized community stories. Searching through community archives, I often wondered, where were the historical documents telling unique perspectives, experiences, and challenges faced by women? Where were the BIPOC women's stories or women from 2S LGBTQI plus communities, women with disabilities, or the stories of newcomer and migrant women? How do you teach women histories when the institutions entrusted to safeguard this history haven't even collected the stories to begin with. In the past, women's stories were often not collected in museums and archives because they were seen as uninteresting or their accomplishments were downplayed, undervalued, diminished, and sometimes even sadly erased. Today, many more historians are now actively seeking out stories from historically marginalized communities to ensure that they are protected, preserved, and because we understand their lasting importance, significance, and value. Thankfully, it's because of change makers, including the women around this table, that have persisted to change the status quo, to ask questions, to challenge common perceptions and stereotypes, to make history her story. And it's through opportunities like this one, through this podcast, that we can show how we can work together to support each other and offer mentorship, to encourage our next generation of humans that they too can make their own change in society and have a lasting impact in their community. Thank you for the opportunity to set the stage for this discussion. 
And if I may, uh, I'd like for our guests to introduce themselves. Today we have Michelle, Sulin, Fatima, Aneta, and Janani. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Aneta Fishman and I am uh, the principal of Anne Frank Public School. More than uh, being a principal, I am a human being. And I think that um, the humanity of who I am 24 seven really centers what I do every day for the students, for the communities that I serve. I am a survivor. Most recently, I am um, a survivor of cancer. And that is something that has defined who I am and who I wish to be. Sometimes it is not until you are faced with the most difficult challenge that you understand what your purpose in life is. And for me, both as an educator and as a human being, that was an experience that helped me understand that every single one of us is here to um, make a difference. For me as an educator, it is about making every moment count. Um, and one of the quotes that really resonated with me most recently was a quote by Brianna Pastor, who said that the trajectory of your life is not determined or measured by what you have done in the past, but the trajectory of your character is determined by who you choose to be in every moment that you exist in. And existence and living life has become something that defines who I am and my whole self. It defines who I am historically being the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, named after someone who was murdered in the Holocaust. I am the story of my ancestors. I am the story of my ancestors who've been exiled, persecuted, oppressed. Ancestors who have rose up time and time again so I can tell my story. There was a time in my life that parts of my identity were pushed back and not exposed because as a woman, as an immigrant, as a person who parts of her identity may make others uncomfortable. Being very mindful of parts of my identity that have impact of how I may be seen, understood, has been challenging for me. It is interesting, like I said before, that it is only when I came very close to not living, being a stage three cancer survivor, that I understood that I need to be who I am and lead with integrity and be there for the students, all students and all communities in everything that I do. Because my painful experience is not my liability, it's my gift. It gives me perspective and meaning, and it's an opportunity to find a unique purpose. And it's an opportunity to find my strength. And that's why I'm here. Thank you, Aneta, for sharing um, your personal story and what brings you to uh, this podcast. 
Hello, everyone. My name is Jenna Nipadi, and I am a secondary school principal. I currently work um, in a central role as principal in curriculum and instructional services, supporting programs such as student success, pathways, and secondary programming. What really brought me to education uh, was the opportunity to work with young people who are often not given enough credit for the enthusiasm that they bring uh, to life, their desire for change, and their um, real interest in innovation. And um, that is coupled with uh, my own background of um, having a family that had to navigate uh, the Canadian school system as they fled a civil war and uh, the desire to really support families in similar situations that are navigating our Canadian uh, school system. And so I feel like um, we have such great privilege as school leaders to support our communities, specifically our families and students, as well as to really uh, tap into the strengths and gifts of the uh, incredible staff in our schools. And together uh, with our students, um, with the staff and with the families, such beautiful things can happen for students in our schools when they are hubs for our communities. Uh, when we can provide opportunities for all of our students to explore their strengths, to grow in areas uh, where uh, they can be stretched, uh, such uh, beautiful solutions to current uh, challenges can be found in the young people that we serve in our schools. And so um, as a uh, leader uh, that is um, that who identifies as female, I would say that I am so grateful for all of the um, women that are in this uh, podcast today because each of them has had to uh, overcome some major obstacles uh, to be in this position of leadership. And um, I'm also grateful for all of the mentors, uh, both men and women, who have really helped me to be in this at this point because we all know the types of barriers that exist for women in leadership. And uh, all of us are here today because someone helped to create the space for us to be there. So um, thank you for inviting us to be part of this podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Michelle Lynch-James, and I am uh, the proud principal of Bill Crothers Secondary School. Um, and uh, very honored to uh, be sharing this space uh, with uh, with these women uh, this afternoon or today. It's just um, uh, wonderful to be here. There are many layers that make up who Michelle Lynch James uh, is and, and how I got to 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 where I am today. And uh, like uh, the women on this uh, on this panel, I, too, am very grateful for all uh, who have come before me. But I'm a woman in leadership. And that's um, when I started. It was very rare um, to see a lot of women in leadership and, and in a space in education that was dominated by men. You would see the women in the in the classroom, but not necessarily the women uh, in the leading roles uh, when it came outside of the classroom. So I'm a woman in leadership uh, that is quite aware of um, 
of the space that I occupy and uh, the people that I lead. Um, I'm also a, a former international athlete uh, who's had the opportunity uh, to compete on, on the world stage and, and uh, had to lead in that capacity as well. So um, that has a, a piece of who I am and what I bring to the table for, for my students and for my families and for the community. Uh, I'm a change maker. I, I enjoy making change. I know change uh, is uncomfortable for most. I, I might be one of the rare few uh, in this world uh, that looks forward to change and embraces change. So I'm a change maker and I'm also an activator. Uh, I like to, to bring things together and activate people and help them find their truth, their leadership capacity, their abilities uh, to go beyond uh, who they are and to push themselves to that, to that, next, to that next level. What I, I really like to to think about who I am and the layers that that make me is 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 uh, much like uh, the woman on this uh, the stage and how Aneta so beautifully articulated. I stand on many shoulders, many shoulders uh, that have come before me, primarily my family, uh, my family who had to uh, immigrate from uh, the Caribbean and then. Uh, to England and then from England to Canada. So a lot of change, a lot of change, a lot of navigating uh, their families and, and settling in countries that may not necessarily have been as friendly as it could have been, but figuring out uh, different systems uh, and the forefront of that is always to to work on your education and make sure because that's something that no one can ever take away from you is something that uh, my parents instilled in me and my grandparents. So I, I stand on a lot of a lot of shoulders to get to where I am today. So it's not uh, something that I've accomplished by myself. It's something that uh, I've done with the support of families and the support of many great mentors. But I push that back into the communities that I work for and make sure that students can see that they too stand on uh, on on many shoulders, uh, the families that are right uh, beside them and the people who have come before them to create these opportunities uh, to ensure that they are able uh, to reach the heights uh, that they are destined to reach. So it's, it's, I'm well aware of the path that has been paved before me, but I'm also uh, very keenly aware of the path that I'm paving uh, for the generation that is coming up behind me. So that's who the, the layers that make up uh, Michelle and James and who I am and what brings me to this podcast. And I am honored and blessed to, to be working uh, and, uh, and leading with these ladies uh, here in the YRDSB. Thank you, Rebecca, for that warm welcome and um, happy Women's History Month to everyone on the panel. I too am thrilled to be in this space today. My name is Sulin Chang and I'm currently the principal at Pierre Elliott Trudeau High School in York Region. I'm happy to be here not only as a teacher and a learner, but as a principal who's worked in the public education system for a very long time. Um, I started my, my career in education as an elementary teacher, actually at 22 years of age where I've taught basically kindergarten to adults uh, in the Toronto District School Board. I transitioned to administration coming from TDSB to York Region, where I have served as a VP and a principal for over 13 years. And much of my work centers on student agency, um, a more family-centric parent engagement approach, and of course, inclusive education. So coming through this pandemic, uh, I've been intentional in what spaces I, I place myself in and how my time is spent and the company that I keep. And I find myself having interest in spaces where there is a direct, direct link to the practical, to actions, 
I have to say I was very honored to accept the position of a co-chair on the Equity Steering Committee or ESAC for the board with Kevin Merkley and Tazlim Ladakh Hadari. But I'm also very honored to be um, on this panel. Um, and I want to acknowledge that there's several people here uh, who are the reason for me being here in this capacity. Uh, my, my colleagues, Michelle, Fatima, Anetta, and Janani, you've all been part of my community, um, a community where I have gone to for support, for troubleshooting, for inspiration, and for celebration, celebration um, experiences of, of joy and, and triumph. Um, so when I received this invitation to participate in today's podcast, I actually thought a lot about what led me to being in this community not just having a relationship of service in a space where I inhabit and spend quite a lot of time. And so I started, like Michelle, to reflect on my own childhood and that sense of community and family that has been a huge part of, of me growing up. So I migrated to Canada as a teenager and spent my formative years what I would describe as a very, very small town um, where I grew up in British Guyana. And everyone on my street in my neighborhood knew everyone else. Uh, we would, as little kids, ring the doorbells and run away. We would um, know everyone who was traveling, whose daughters, cousins, or friends were um, sent abroad to, to study. Um, we all attended the same church and we were always in our very, it was actually true, our very Sunday best clothing. That was the only time we actually wore dresses as, as females. Um, on that Sunday, we were invited to birthday parties and celebrated weddings and special events together. So I know when you hear this um, uh, as a listener, you're thinking, well, yeah, that can exist in a smaller space. But living in a country as vast and as beautiful as Canada, I count myself lucky if I'm even aware of the neighbors that I live with two or three doors away from me. So I've been thinking a lot about that and thinking about that whole small community concept and the fact that building community takes intention and it takes work. It's really about building a sense of belonging, which I think is so crucial for our well-being, a sense of well-being, um, as we know, facilitates connectedness. I bring back that theme of community to speak about because I'm a byproduct of the community that I'm surrounded in and that I live in. I think about the word responsibility when I think about the word community. And I know that it does not exist in a space onto itself, um, that we all need to take ownership of it and contribute to it. And not everyone is necessarily comfortable with that sense of responsibility and how to navigate it. But oftentimes we we just feel responsible for what's immediately within our small circle, whether it's our relatives, you know, our very, very close friends. But I want to say that I'm here thanks to folks like, I'm going to just name them, my sister who works in um, the development sector focusing on anti-human trafficking, and to folks like a huge mentor and a coach and a friend of mine who is now the director of Peel Board, Rajmi Swaroop. It's folks like this who um, have demonstrated compassionate leadership, who were always available to listen, 
who were never more than a phone call away, who were always checking in, who themselves have full plates uh, and lots of to-do to -do lists, but who have undeniably given of their time when I know it wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. And so I think I'm living proof of, of folks like the ones I've just mentioned who are always contributing or giving back to the community. So for me, being a part of this, just being honored to be a part of this very, very special group is meaningful to me because it gives me an opportunity to recognize uh, folks like the Rajmis of this world or the Cecil Roaches of this world who always are, are giving of their own time. And I hope to follow in their footsteps um, by modeling the same for the teachers and for the colleagues that I support as well. Hi everyone, my name is Fatima Jessa. I am just so very honored and come from a place of gratitude to be able to sit amongst my uh, my colleagues and my friends who who have been along with me on this journey of uh, of leadership uh, in in all the spaces that we occupy and um, you know I think about um, you know our connections in various spaces and at various times. Um, I am a very proud mother of two lovely adult children. And um, I am a principal at uh, Aldergrove uh, Elementary and have been here for a few years. Um, it's funny because when, when we're asked to introduce ourselves, I hear about the wonderful things that everyone else brings to the table. And I'm just inspired to continue hearing more. And I think about all the social identities that, you know, I hold and and how some of them elevate and affirm me in this space and some of them um, people might see as outside the box and an othering but to me they're all assets and I bring all those to this table. Um, I hold um, a master's uh, in education from OISE. Um, I am um, my children call me uh, first generation here although I was not born here. I'm from, um, my ethnicity is um, Indian, but I have come from um, a group we call the Koja diaspora, which left um, India thousands of years back uh, because of persecution when uh, they converted from Hinduism to Islam and had to take the, the boats to leave um, and, and go to East, uh, East Africa, that's where they landed. And so I'm seventh generation um, from the African continent and I hold many um, of those, um, you know, pieces of African identity. So when people ask, where are you from? Where are you really from? It's a story for me and it, it reminds me and when I keep thinking about and reflecting on my pieces of identity, it reminds me how much intersection we can have within the identity. So I consider myself uh, of African heritage, but not ancestry. Um, I speak 
um, Swahili fluently. I speak uh, multiple other languages. I can, you know, read, write, um, read and write Arabic, but can't speak it. I can understand Hindi and Urdu and Gujarati, so some of the Indian languages, which really for me has shown me what an asset that can be because in community, I can interact and understand uh, and and kind of feel that empathy towards multiple um, multiple communities and I can access multiple um, sources of uh, knowledge and honoring of multiple peoples when I'm interacting with community and I, I feel like that's my genius that's what I come with being able to to cultivate a a place of uh, collaboration and comfort and safety for everyone. I, I am also what runs courses through my through my veins, the blood of my ancestors who moved and continued to do civic duty and be in service, um, who were not satisfied with being put into a box and uh, who have inspired me um, very especially the women in my family who have inspired me um, to to continue to to challenge and um, you know really disrupt some of those stereotypes and assumptions about what it means to be in in the body that I occupy in in such public spaces and so I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to come and be among Sulin and Michelle and Anetta and Janani and yourself, Rebecca, to really um, share in this opportunity to, to surface multiple intersections of stories that create the dynamic world that we are living in, right? So, um, Thank you for that. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing um, a little bit of your, your stories. Um, I know that uh, for me personally, just hearing hearing those little snippets, it really, it really brought um, joy to my heart to be hearing them because uh, uh, being in public history, uh, as I said, that's the thing that really, really connects me to my job. I was wondering if we could start off by just sharing how we got to this field of education and sharing our unique um, stories leading up to this point. Uh, I can start off by saying that for me, I actually, when I went to university, I thought I was going to be a teacher and uh, I actually really didn't like the program. So, so it's very ironic that I work in a school board now. <laughs> Um, but uh, so I know that all of us have different stories on how we got into education. And I was wondering if someone could could start us off and share how how their journey began in the field of education. I'm really so honored and grateful to be in such amazing company and uh, surrounded by such incredible and powerful leaders, uh, Janani, Sulin, Fatima, Michelle. Your stories inspired and continue to inspire me. My mother is a teacher, so <laughs> I'm I'm one of those cheesy stories of my mother is a teacher. I thought to be a teacher, but actually never. Like I don't think I wanted to be a teacher. My mother was a teacher in the former Soviet Union. I was born in the Ukraine, 
And my mother was a teacher in an education system where she can only be part of who she is in order to serve the community that she was in. Parts of um, who she was in terms of her social, religious identities um, had to be hidden. And so she wore a mask and, and, and she, she led and taught and served the community without really being able to be fully who she was as a, as a Jewish Russian woman. <laughs> and and um, but her stories throughout my upbringing inspired me um, to, um, to really think about the power that a teacher, an educator has. And um, she wasn't a teacher for all of her life. She was a teacher when we were living in the, the in, in Ukraine, former Soviet Union. But when I was three years old, I um, moved to to Israel, and I lived in Israel for ten years, and a very different culture, different language. And my mother was not able to teach in Israel, and um, never went back to teaching. <laughs> so. That was not something that she was um, able to continue doing. And um, shortly thereafter, about 10 years later, we moved again to Canada. The realities of those moves of uprooting families, moving, you know, I, I, I found myself teaching as a high school student, but I didn't wasn't sure that I wanted to be a teacher. And, and it was not until university that um, that I felt that this is what I needed to do um, to connect with people and to connect with young people and to help others over, overcome some barriers. I re realized the power of education and how important education is in order to um, be able to move forward and to survive. And Michelle, one of some of the things that you were saying around the value of education and, and how um, that became something so important for my parents is like, you know, no, there's no choice. You're going to university. You have to have an education. This is something that you have to do, because if you want to survive in this world, if you want to be able to um, to to um, make a difference and to um, to be seen and to help others be seen, you know, the, the root is education. And, and so I ended up, I found myself um, in the field of education, um, couldn't get a job in the public school system because when I graduated in 96, boards amalgamated and people lost jobs. And I was newly married at 21 and I needed a job and <laughs> needed to pay rent. So I found myself um, working for half the pay in a private private um, school system. And I was there for eight years before um, being incredibly fortunate and, and really fulfilling my dream of being able to serve in the public education system. I value my experiences in the private um, system. I've learned so much, but um, I'm considering myself really lucky to have uh, been able to be to, to join York Region District School Board and to be able to learn and grow and um, and create help create the conditions together with incredible colleagues for students to um, to achieve and to find um, their success in edu the education system. So 
that's kind of how I ended up here. A little bit of that, a little bit of this, but grateful. How I found myself, it's Michelle, and how I found myself in education. Uh, there's a joke among some of my uh, uh, inner circle friends is that for me, it was a happy accident uh, coming into uh, education. As, as, a, as a young person, as a teen and as a, a student, I, I was always teaching. Uh, I coached, I, I worked in the community as a teacher, I tutored as a child, I did a lot of things and hustled as a teacher, but I never I never studied teaching uh, when I went to university. I was uh, directed towards the law because there was a lot of lawyers in my family and the expectation was I was gonna join the, the family firm uh, and, uh, and work with my siblings, which I never really thought about. I just did what I was told to do, right? I didn't really have a, an idea of my career because that was sort of path carved out for me before I, I could even think about what my career was. Um, and the happy accident started when um, a friend of mine who was a teacher asked me to come to the school um, and speak to students about uh, about law school and going to law school and, and being a lawyer. And they had many people there um, and many careers for for the young people to uh, to explore and ask questions. And um, much like when I was tutoring or when I was working in the community as a community teacher, as coaching, people said to me, or the principal said, are you a teacher? Are you going to teacher's college? You should really go to teacher's college. Because I sort of took over the whole class, right? And um, was supposed to be there for an hour, spent the whole day and just really loved it and just really enjoyed that uh, that environment where students were learning and craving and, and wanting to ask questions. Um, so uh, after that, I, I had um, many people asking me to apply to Teachers College, and I had already uh, finished university and I was studying for the bar at the time. And um, I did I did apply, and I sort of abandoned uh, that uh, idea to 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 go to law school, to finish law school, and uh, and to I went into teaching. Uh, wasn't it didn't really hit well at home. It wasn't a good uh, it wasn't a good uh, plan for my parents. Uh, I remember my dad's look saying, "What." Like this is not what I came to Canada for, right? Right? You're you're not uh, following the blueprint uh, of our of our immigration plan, right? Um, but uh, it, it it turned out pretty well, and um, I am the only teacher in my family, um, and I'm very proud of that. Um, but at the same time, it has given me that opportunity to really give back uh, to my community. Some of the, the the joys that come when people see you as a teacher. I grew up in in uh, inner city Toronto, uh, Midtown Toronto, and I I never had uh, a racialized teacher, none, zero in Midtown Toronto. I I didn't have any, not uh, not one in the whole school from uh, going to school, um, uh, elementary school, right up to high school. I didn't see uh, a racialized teacher until I went to university. And um, when when kids see me as as a woman. Uh, as a racialized leader, um, there's there's some huge joy uh, there, and there's also some huge relief for families where they can come and be their authentic self because they can uh, sit down and talk to you. And there's not a lot of explaining or a lot of code switching or um, a lot of uh, backpedaling and feeling guilty that they they are not fully present in their child's education. So I I, I make that. Uh, part of my leadership. Um, so coming into education, as I said, a happy accident, but something that I think was destined for me was part of my my path, but I didn't realize that was part of my path until that one day that I came to uh, a middle school and was was um, presenting in front of students. And the joy that that, uh, that day has brought me and the continued joy that I have uh, today has, has been unreal. So teaching has also filled my cup 
and uh, given me the opportunity to give back in that capacity, not only to my school community, but to the greater community uh, that we serve here at YRDSB. I, I'm thinking about, wow, Michelle and Annette, that's, uh, that's, that's very, it's powerful, right? To hear everyone's uh, a traverse into, into education. I feel like I've always wanted to work with children. Like that was, it didn't matter how I did it. That's how I was gonna do it. Um, I wanted to be a pediatrician. If you had asked me this question in my teen years, I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna be the doctor. <laughs> um, and that was something that um, I really wanted to fulfill as part of my um, nurturing tendencies and, and supporting and, and being the eldest in a large family and you know, really kind of, although if you knew me as a little child, I was the one who played who was a teacher and the boss lady oh, when we were playing house and, you know, go to school and I was a teacher and the principal. So it's very interesting where my my um, passion for, for working with, uh, with young ones started. But uh, when I was in high school in YRDSB, uh, the guidance counselor actually said, oh, you don't need to go into that. You don't need to go to the pathway to be a doctor. Why don't you just do D, uh, ECE at that time? ECE, just go to Seneca College and, and do ECE. And it was, now that I reflect back, it was something that, um, you know, I could have challenged. But I also, on the one side, I'm getting that from a system. On the other side, I was getting it from home. Oh, you should go into something where you can finish up your degree because that was a necessary requisite. Get, get an education, very important to my family that, uh, you know, I, I fulfill a, an educational requirement, but it shouldn't be too long because, you know, you need to get married and to have children. And so uh, a path has to be charted for you. And so whether or not you use your education, it doesn't matter. But, you know, choose something that is not going to take you eight years. It should only take you a, a short amount of time. And so there went my, you know, dreams of being a pediatrician, and uh, I did choose, uh, I did choose uh, ECE. However, I was like, mm, I'm not going to go to college. There's nothing wrong with the college pathway, but you know, it was it was a choice to to go into university and to um, to really try to challenge that assumption and stereotype about where you know, a person who, again, who visibly looks like me would be placed. Um, I feel like, um, to, to Michelle's point, when, uh, as an educator, when, when um, you know, other uh, communities, families see me, uh, I recall, uh, I didn't have representation of uh, staff or teachers that looked like me, professors that looked like me. And so when I became a teacher, I still in the in the communities that I was, um, you know, there would be this assumption that you're not really a teacher here. And so I would wear my badge, like, you know, the badge that you get from the school. And that would be like, yes, I'm a teacher. So having to overcome and disrupt those those assumptions that people make has been like a constant challenge that you know I continue to uh, develop um, even through my life. I, I feel like I could have just you know stayed as uh, an ECE, but my husband was um, 
No, I think you are destined to do more than uh, more because you can fulfill something you can actualize to your fullest potential. And so, you know, even after I got married, I, I went back to school and continued furthering my education so that um, I could be, um, you know, a teacher and then move into the education and so, you know, saying this, I, I look at my narrative and I think, oh, yeah, I could come in from a very, you know, I could come in as a with a deficit mindset. But I look at all these experiences and think about how this has really uh, allowed me to to champion, you know, that that uh, achieving to the fullest potential for every single child that comes through the building from kindergarten to grade eight as they pursue what they want and and not um, you know not create barriers but actually open up the space so that you know they go on to post-secondary secondary post-secondary post and and they are passioned and they are um, you know really being able to sit with their true selves and um, and not and and not have systems kind of put them again in that box but really offer them just by my story that uh, you can you can choose where you want to go it's not easy uh, there's multiple things um, to to go through but it can be done so yeah I I this is this is this beautiful space now that I can sit and and talk about um, my my experience through education and I continue to evolve love learning so this is going to be a lifelong thing and that's what I what I love about uh, where I'm at in this moment so you know these are fascinating stories mine is like totally opposite so I have I'm from a I'm the third yes I have to think about that I'm the third of of, of four children and um I really tried to grasp chemistry and to embrace it to its fullest because my first love was to go into, like you, Fatima, into medicine. I wanted to go into specifically naturopathic medicine. I have a love for the outdoors and I have a love for adventure and for sports. And I live my life um, embracing that every single day, to be very honest with you, gets me into trouble. Um, needless to say, um, I think I just fell into education. I have always loved children. I think anything miniature. So I, I have like three cats, kittens, dogs, turtles, birds, like growing up, we had, I don't want to say a farm, but it felt like um, anything that I could bring home, um, nurture was there. And so uh, I'd be the first one to babysit anybody's child, uh, whether they were physically challenged, cognitively challenged, it didn't matter. I loved anything tiny, tinier than me, because I guess I wasn't such a large kid growing up, although I, I thought I was, um, even now. Uh, anyway, so for me, my family really struggled. What are we going to do with you, Sunan? Okay, you're not the most brilliant academic individual in mathematics. Um, you're not coming home with A's on your reports. Um, I was quite happy to be the mediocre middle child because then there weren't any expectations of me. And then I could be outdoors with all the boys. That's typically what I did. Climbing trees, you know, experimenting on bikes, all types, motorized, non-motorized vehicles, really 
living, I want to say, a, an, an outdoors lifestyle, which didn't require formal schooling. Um, but that wasn't going to be because <clears throat> I think it's just a Caribbean, a West Indian, New Canadian experience. You are hammered with, you have to go to school. You have to go to university. I don't care what else you do. You have to finish your education. And so that was very, very key. So I, I decided at 16 um, when I left high school that I guess I'm going to take a Bachelor of Education and I guess I'm going to go pursue education. And actually, I kind of loved it. I fell in love with working with, I don't want to say kindergarten age children, but they were elementary age children. Kindergarten age children really scared me, actually. But I fell in love with working with elementary students and there I worked for 14 years and enjoyed every minute of it, but also wanted to challenge myself because I often felt I had lots more to give of who I was. I had a lot of energy and I wanted to explore what other kinds of challenges besides education I, I could, you know, um, put on my plate. And so I never in my wildest dreams wanted to go into administration. In fact, I always thought to myself, shouldn't the best be in our classrooms serving our students? And so when there were opportunities that opened up or doors that opened up, sure, I'll take that course. Sure, I'll try this. And sure, that's how I stumbled upon where I am right now. And I'm being very, very honest about this. I don't think my parents uh, had very high expectations for me. I am female. Um, you're the happy-go-lucky one, you know, just go get married, um, have a couple kids, and marry somebody who is going to be able to take care of you. I didn't do any of those. I actually adopted my own child. And I, although I've come from, I want to say, a family of our privilege, I'm also in a space right now where, again, what I had referred to earlier, that I'm very choosy about who I want to um, spend time with and the spaces that I want to spend time in. And so for me, I think, how did I end up in the field of education? I think I've fallen in love with it. I've fallen in love with every September, that sense of excitement. I love the fall. I, I love the building. I love the challenges of building and co-creating. And I also love being able to engage a population, whether it's students, but most mostly I, I'm drawn to parents as a parent myself, of trying to find out how I can truly work in partnership with parents so that it's not, school isn't seen as school centric, that thou shalt, but more work walking alongside them to build an understanding of, of their child and to build an understanding of who I'm actually serving. And so for that reason, I think um, I continue to do what I love to do. And I'm excited every day to wake up and to embrace the newness of this world or this field of education. My journey to education is um, a little bit different and in some ways similar to uh, some of the stories that have been shared so far. I really loved uh, learning about science when I was in school, and I'm grateful to the teachers that I had that, um, you know, created such learning experiences uh, to have that desire to want to learn more. So I went um, off to university to study toxicology and uh, really um, just enjoyed that opportunity and the challenges that came along with it as well. Um, and at the same time, you know, I'm really grateful to my parents 
who had the wisdom to encourage me to um, ensure that I had um, part-time jobs. And my dad always stressed the importance of the skills that you get from the job um, versus uh, the wages. He was he always talked to me about like how you might be able to take those skills in a Canadian workforce uh, and uh, use them later. And I think he was speaking as an immigrant who really had to navigate the struggles of getting a job and getting qualifications to recognize and understanding the value of work experience. And so with those summer jobs, the opportunities I had uh, included uh, working with uh, children as a swim instructor uh, with the town, as well as working in summer camps. And so that really afforded me the opportunity to go beyond my science world and really uh, started thinking about how much I loved working with students, as well as in our community, in various community-based uh, children's programs. And so um, I started thinking about how I might be able to combine that love of science with that sort of interest in uh, working and programming with children. And that's sort of what took me uh, to becoming a science educator. What I would say, uh, some of the sort of reflections that I had is I started in TDSB and uh, that I like um, Annetta mentioned, it was a really challenging time that year, that time because there weren't very many jobs and York region was just, uh, you know, expanding at a rapid rate. And so I'm really grateful to York region for, um, you know, hiring me. And the school that I first landed in was actually, so when I went to school, just to give context, I was probably one of three students um, of Thummel heritage that were at, was at the school. And then when I went to U of T, you know, it was, there was just a variety of students of different backgrounds. And so identity really hadn't played much in my life in terms of being at the forefront until I arrived at my first Wire DSB school. And I remember teaching my grade 11 U biology class and my door would just open and students would walk in, random students who I didn't know and would be like, is it true? Are you Thummel? And I'm like, do I know you? <laughs> I'm teaching a class, right? But it would happen consistently in that first month. The kids could not believe that there was a Thummel teacher in the school. And they would just constantly come in and say, I heard about this, or they would stop me in the stairwell. And so that's when I realized the value of um, identity and how much it in impacts and influences uh, students and communities. And uh, later when I became an administrator, even though my fluency in Tamil, I would, I would say is not as proficient as it can be, how much families appreciated um, being able to share whatever their struggles were and knowing that someone else would understand because they could speak in first language. Um, and also, um, because I had been raised in a Canadian system, I was sort of also able to, you know, determine and also shockingly see a lot of the barriers that they were facing with different systems that were sometimes working against youth that may have made just choices that were not always the greatest, but really put them in positions that were um, particular systems might have really uh, limited their opportunities moving forward. And so advocacy started becoming a really huge part of um, the work 
the importance of helping students to understand the importance of education and uh, the same type of um, commitment that my parents instilled in me that education was the way uh, to sort of attempt to level, level an uneven playing field and also to help families understand their rights and what they could do on behalf of their own children. And so when I think about even my own family and my dad encouraging me to uh, pursue a master's soon after I finished teacher's college, and I was like, no, I really, I do not want to be in school anymore. And him saying, you know what, you're always going to work, have to work twice as hard to prove yourself. You will need more qualifications because they knew, uh, based on all of the challenges they faced, that the body that I occupied was always going to face challenges. Um, and so I think the advice of my family, um, as well as really great people in the system who saw past what you sort of physically presented as and the encouragement of other administrators in the system to pursue the path of uh, vice principal and principal is really um, what has allowed me to be here today. So, you know, I think all of us have spoken to the importance of the way families can really help support students, but also the incredible role that educators can play to uh, support students and uh, what we can really do if we can always work in a partnership with that real focus on helping kids have the best experience possible. So much of what you shared, Janani, I'm like, I'm like listening and I'm saying, just like a kid, Anetta, just sit back, listen, listen, because I was just itching to jump in because like, oh my goodness, so much of what you shared resonated with me um, as an immigrant um, as well. And I was mentioning before that I started my career in the private system and then ended up in York region. I was um, ended up at um, at a school that was predominantly Russian speaking and Russian being my first language, although I haven't used it um, much uh, growing up, I was wired to it and ended up in a school with a community that um, many, many uh, students and families spoke Russian. And I think that was the moment that I understood the power of affirming identity, being able to connect with families and communities through language and, and common experience and, and the experiences and, and the power of that was so significant. And especially in, in, in a new school or build when you are building community or creating community, like, oh my goodness, that is, it is significant. It also made me realize that and be very mindful of the identities that I um, don't have enough knowledge and information about and to always think about what do I know, what do I not know, and what do I need to possibly unlearn, relearn, and learn about community members so I can connect with them on various levels as well and make sure that I'm not missing anything or I make sure that I'm not erasing anyone's experience. So this was like, like a continuous, like throughout my career, this is something that has always been on my mind, the power of connection and that being mindful of other members of the communities that in, in, in my care that I want to make sure that I'm not missing because 
not knowing is not an excuse. And, and I'm very hard on myself as a school leader um, to make sure that I'm not missing anything and to make sure that every single child in my care is and, and, and every family is seen and is seen for who they are and the promise of who they can be um, in our educational system. I remember when I when we immigrated to Canada and in grade eight, being an ESL student at the time, that was my first experience of family studies and industrial arts. And I'll share a little story because that is a story that I go back to as a woman and I remind myself of the, the power of possibility. So those who know me now know that there are many things that are important to me uh, in terms of self-care right now. <laughs> in grade eight, things were a little bit different. Um, and I questioned and challenged uh, systems even then. The boys and girls in grade eight, when I went to school, uh, were divided into classes. The, the boys went to industrial arts and the girls went to family studies. And that made me, you know, um, very upset because in my, you know, 12-year-old, uh, no, 13, I was 13 already, 13-year-old at that time, I said, this is not, this cannot be possible. And I'm going to go to industrial I want to do industrial arts. My father is a plumber by trade. He's in construction and drove taxi when he came to Canada. And I'm doing industrial arts. I'm not going to be sewing shorts. And so I ended up, my parents did not speak any, a word of English. They signed whatever papers I gave them. And I ended up in the industrial arts class. I was the only female identifying student in the, the class. And we had to build a, um, a birdcage. My father is a plumber, he's in construction, he's a builder, like I, I knew how to build. And that was something that I said, I'm going to build the best birdcage and show them <laughs> that girls can do it too. And anyways, at the end of the year, this, this, this whole culture of grade eight awards, everything was really new. And although my parents' education was very important and I came from, you know, um, a math and computer science program in my elementary school in Israel, but I made sure that, you know, my award, my, my goal was to get the Industrial Arts Award that year. And my dad, I couldn't, you know, he smiled year to year because I did get the Industrial Arts Award in grade eight. And that was something that I go back to because in terms of shaking stereotypes and um, disrupting systems or disrupt changing expectations, you know, and really believing and saying, look, anything is possible because I can do it too, you know, and, and, and that is in me as a leader, like there is no, you know, like everything is possible. But it is about community and it is about working together and, 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 and challenging systems and challenging expectations and, and moving each other forward together. Um, it is something that stayed with me. And um, I go back to my, that story because believing that anything is possible is so needed at our course leaders and as um, educators and seeing the possibilities in children. You know what, Aneta? So you started talking and I'm listening to Janity thinking, okay, 
my drive and my fight to be who I am right now, okay, as a woman who is, oh yeah, I just turned 60, not too long ago, has been one of, thank you, mom, for putting me in a very traditional role. Thank you for compartmentalizing me and defining my boundaries, but you don't know anything about me. And I'm going to defy all of those roles, all of those boundaries you've put in for me. And so when I, I, I listen to a number of your stories, you have had very supportive parents encouraging you to continue your education, to get your master's, um, et cetera. My mom has been, you just stay at home, be a wonderful wife, raise lovely children, because that's what my mom did. And she did an outstanding job. But I thank my mom at the age of 91, she's still very, very cognitively there and very, actually, she can walk a whole lot faster than I can when I was on my crutches about a month ago. Very embarrassing. Um, but I love her because I am a product of her limitations, her boundaries. And I think I'm, I'm, I've often, and my daughters often ask, my, ask me, you know, you're crazy. You're supposed to be my mom. You don't act like a mom. And I'm glad that I don't. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of who I am sitting here, you know, listening to your stories. And I'm thinking to myself, um, I want to continue in the field of relationship building, in the field of connectedness, in the field of, as I mentioned earlier in the beginning, of building community, because I don't want any person, whether they identify as their assigned female at birth or they identify as a non-binary to be living in a box, to be living in um, boundaries that have been superimposed on them. And I think that's why I continue to do the work that I do. It's I've got this little fighter spirit in me that I'm going to explore and I'm going to be, you know, whether it's conquering a Via Ferrata in Italy or in Vancouver where I broke my leg recently, or whether I'm track racing on a motorcycle at 250 kilometers, I, I am going to defy the odds because it was defined for me from day one uh, growing up and all through my formative years. And guess what world? You have no clue what's gonna hit you. And so I come with that spirit and that energy. <laughs> and oftentimes I'm meeting a number of, of, of uh, parents who uh, believe they, that I come from a very similar ethnic background. And oftentimes, because I don't speak, you know, their first language of Cantonese or Mandarin, or I don't have um, very similar expectations, they are, they smile a lot, I've noticed, um, because I don't fit that little box. And I, I don't think, and I think that's what's kind of really cool listening to all of your stories. I think all of us as women have, I want to use that word, um, work through resistance and struggle and okay sorry the resilience word comes into mind here um but we are who we are thanks to the communities that we've been raised in and i know i'm very thankful for the one that i've been raised in and continue to be and so when i look around this room this virtual room i know there are many more fatimas many more anettas many more jananis and folks many more uh, michelles who I'm so proud to be in relation with, who I'm so proud to be connected to. And I think this is why I continue to do what I do. Rebecca, if I may, I'd, I'd like to just 
step back and 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 um, touch on something that uh, the many of the ladies have said uh, today that um, about representation and uh, not having that representation or being that representation uh, in their field either um, when they were teachers, vice principals, or, or principals. And I I just wanted to to stress the point that like representation for our students. Uh, has always been an important, but it hasn't always been there um, as a woman or as a racialized person. You you didn't have that representation um, as a leader today and, and leading my school at Bill Crothers. That's one of the things that I look for uh, when hiring. Right. How do I make sure that representation is there for all my students, regardless if that representation is in my student body? Right. Because uh, as as humans, as individuals, we're going to have to I'm going to have to let uh, those young people go and go out into the real world, um, as we say here, at Bill Crothers, beyond our hedges and and work and live with with many diverse people and the first training ground here to work and live and understand people and and see them and 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 uh, work with them and and live with them from the lens that they are coming from starts in school. As school is a, is an example of 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 a small world where we are um, having teachers from uh, different backgrounds or, or educational support workers, uh, DCEs, uh, child and youth workers, uh, caretaking staff, office staff, everyone here of diverse backgrounds, and we're all functioning as one. So that representation is something at the forefront of hiring uh, for us uh, as. Um, as leaders and, and for me myself here at Bill Crothers. And it's something that is is always uh, on my mind because I, I didn't have it. And it sounds like a lot of these women uh, here on this panel didn't have it as a child, uh, didn't have teachers um, or, or support workers in the school that represented or that reflected the communities that we come from. So how important that is to hear in, here in, in York region that uh, our region is growing, it's diverse and, and students uh, deserve and should have representation in front of them in the classroom, outside of the classroom, and everywhere we function uh, here as a system, both on the education side and on the business side. So how important that is and how um, how odd it is, and maybe not odd for all of us to say that uh, we didn't have that much or any growing up, but now students uh, under our leadership will have that right here in York region. Thank you all for that. You know, I'm jotting down some notes and like talking, you know, representation, pathways, um, mentorship, uh, community, belonging. Like these are all really powerful themes to be thinking about and to be hearing personal stories um, to be shared. And uh, I think uh, once again, I'm just grateful to be to be listening in on this. One of the things that I jotted down here was was the pathways piece and I find that it's really interesting to to hear from you all how there wasn't really a direct path to be in education and also to be thinking about like the struggles and challenges along the way if we're thinking about our students, what recommendations or what what insight would you give to them to be saying like that perhaps, you know, your pathway may not be clear coming right out of elementary or in, you know, secondary school that there might be uh, opportunity for, for change or a different pathway forward. Well, I could start. I think it's important 
that all of us in education try to emphasize the importance of students really developing their interests and skills. And that can be both in the classroom, but also outside through the variety of co-curricular activities that we have in our schools. And I think the more that we can encourage students to take as a variety of uh, courses, say at secondary as possible, we help students to broaden their exposure to a variety of subject areas so that if you know you were brought up in a specific way of thinking that your mind is exposed to um, a variety of um, you know when we talk about diversity we're also talking about diversity of thought right um, and at the same time perhaps looking at education as a way to develop transferable skills rather than just a means to an end. Because if we look at uh, the current data out there, each person may not anymore have this one job for you know their entire career, but uh, needs to be versatile enough to be able to move between careers, to be able to take those risks to move between positions uh, because uh, they have aspirations that might change to recognize that life is filled with change. Our personal circumstances might change and yet we shouldn't feel stuck because of the change around us. Uh, Michelle spoke earlier about you know, her ability to embrace change. And I think if we could um, help students to be able to uh, respond to change, in doing that, it's through the skills and the interests and the knowledge that we can um, help students to develop. So um, I think the best we could do for our students is to help folks understand that we, there doesn't have to be a linear path. While we might not need to have the path carved out right away, we should try and explore as many options as possible. And I think that's something we have a duty to do um, as school staff to support that. Just thinking uh, as you're speaking, Jenny, such wisdom, right? Like in terms of where we, um, how are we supporting our, our future, our future generations. And we think about, you know, seven generations down. And I, it's almost like for me, there's like two pieces that I'm holding as mutually important. One is, uh, the system itself and the system uh, not replicating the, the the biases and the streaming that you know um, that happens sometimes unconsciously sometimes consciously to stream pathways and to um, you know not look at the interests and visible interests and geniuses that our students bring every day uh, and the gifts they bring and not nurturing them because there is an imposition of, of the system to create a pathway or a narrative uh, of a particular child or particular community or something like that. So that requires like a system disruption and while I feel like we are beginning to talk about it and beginning to do the hard work that is required to disrupt it there is a ways to go in 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 an evolution of the system and all the pieces that are required to go along with it and to your point Jenny also on the other side is to how do we build that I know 
there's so many words that you know we used to use previously and now we challenge ourselves in terms of um, you know how do we internally not oppress ourselves because society is oppressing us by putting us in that box and so you know Sulin talks about watch out there's a fire in me um, there's a fire there's a fire in all of us that that has been fermenting that has been ignited to 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 challenge and to disrupt and to self-actualize and so how do we nurture that that spirit within that you know we can you know support nurturing that spirit in this system so that if you know, a child moving through the system then has, you know, has barriers and has access, because we, we've all had it. If we, you know, unpack everybody's story, we've all had those pieces where we could have gone one way or the other, and we chose the other way, which is not this other way, and that's why we've landed here. And how do we recognize that building the spirit, you know, what does that need? In, in the system so that the spirit of the child continues to evolve and ignite so they can uh, in their future be flexible and they can, you know, turn around and pivot as things come at them which they are not, they didn't want or they are choosing not, but people are are, are putting them in that box. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm sometimes challenged with the two. It's not opposing because they are all interlinked, like we are all interlinked. How do we surface the one piece around the system and then at the same time build within, um, because we've all had to nurture those pieces within us. How do we collectively make this space for every child to 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 have that spirit. What you said, Fatima, really made me think about leading with intention and leading with integrity and what that looks like in schools and in classrooms every single day and the role that we have as school administrators. What does that look like when we center student achievement and well-being while considering all of the various challenges and barriers that students may experience um, navigating the school system. I think that, you know, every single action, every single decision that we make as school leaders, whether it's uh, decisions around resources, allocation of resources, hiring, like Michelle mentioned before, conversations that we have in the hallways, supervision outside at recess, conversations that we have with parents, every single thing that we do contributes to that environment that is intentional, that is focused on creating the best possible place for children to succeed, um, achieve, and be who they are. Like I'm, I'm reflecting on some of the values that we have as a system in our school board and the connections that we make to those every single day in the way that we lead schools and the way that we prepare students for the world that they have 
and the world that is ahead, um, being able to think critically about situations, both locally and globally, um, understanding the importance of critical consumption of information, and oh my goodness, the online world, you know, <laughs> we did not grow up with that. Uh, the world is happening and happening seven hours forward or uh, 16 hours forward for students in our care every single moment of every single day. And what that means really, I think, changed, uh, especially more so in recent years, the way that I lead schools, the way that I know some of my friends and colleagues lead schools, because we have to be mindful of so much more um, than what is happening right here and right now, because children's lives and children's world has expanded and is impacted by so much more, right? The access to information, knowledge, and being able to um, navigate all of that and make sense of all of that, it's a lot. <laughs> there is just so much. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that every single decision, every single thing that we do um, must be done with such intention and, such, and so much integrity in service and our commitment to service of our students and our communities. I would I would agree with you, uh, Anetta. Everything we do impacts uh, the advice that we we give our our students and we give our our uh, our families. And I we have those conversations with students all the time, and we try to we make sure that we tell them to explore their interest and 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 do something because that you love because as you uh, get older you're going to be doing that for uh for a period of time and and you don't want to always feel like you're going to work you want to enjoy what you're doing so try to find something that you love don't put yourself uh, as Sulin uh, has said don't put yourself don't put limits on yourself uh don't be fearful of change uh, it's okay to change your mind um when they come to high school uh we expect at at 17 sometimes 18 to pick a career to go into, right? And and all of us fell into education or, or uh, accidentally had a happy accident into education, but we didn't pick exactly, we didn't stay exactly with what we picked um, when we were finishing up high school. But uh, some of the best advice I, I tell students, because no matter what skill you go into, what trade, what, what uh, profession you're going to, there's some soft skills that you will need for everything. You need to know how to communicate, either uh, verbally, written. You need to know how to communicate and communicate well to get your point across. You need to be a team player. So you need to know how to work with groups of people, either small groups or large groups, but to be a, a team player and what it means uh, to be uh, a gracious winner and what it means to be a, a gracious loser. You need to know how to problem solve and solve problems. There'll be massive problems that you need to untangle and figure out. And, and it's not always a win-win situation. Right uh, here at Crothers, we talk about a whoop. It's just the W. You didn't win. You got a whoop. You got the first letter. Right, and 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 that is still good. Right, um, and as Anetta talked about, you need to be a critical thinker. Right, you need to know how to cr think critically and predict and to understand and to see other people's point of views. Uh, another thing here at our school that we we stress is the work ethic. What is your work ethic? 
right? Uh, we know sometimes we slack off and so forth, but you need to know how to put in the work and how to how to have a strong work ethic and how to manage conflict. And one of the biggest things that uh, is surprising to families, I say they need to be creative. You need to know how to be creative, right? I'm preparing you for a world that I don't even know what would it look like when you get to you get to our age, right? There are jobs that are out there or, or professions that are out there that are are they're unexplored yet. You're going to dive in and and expose that to the world, right? I, I often think about uh, the world of apps and so forth when they first came in and how we weren't prepared for that. And now everything has an app. There's so many apps, right? You want to go on a plane, you have to download the app, right? And uh, it, 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 it's, it's a lot. It's crazy. So I think that we should always have to uh, be prepared for for these worlds, but those soft skills students need to know how to how to manage soft skills and what those soft skills are in order to function in any profession, any any trade uh, that they're preparing for, and that it's okay to change your mind, right? It's okay to change your mind when you're 18 or 20, and it's okay to change your mind when you're 50 or 60, right? As long as it's making you happy and it's something that you want to explore, do it because a life with regrets is not uh, is is not worth it, right? It's better to to try and and uh, and to feel and to say, hey, well, that's not I tried and it, it it didn't work out, but at least I know that that's not for me. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna pivot and find a different direction. So those soft skills in, in the world that we're preparing students for are crucial and uh, they hold more value. Uh, than uh, the curriculum that we're also teaching them at the same time. I'm gonna I'm gonna say to all of that. I think it's it's thriving in a world of chaos. But if you if you have a culture, and I'm gonna be very blunt here, if you have a culture that does not embrace change, if you have a culture, whether it's within a building or within an organization that does not move or embrace innovation or change, I kind of wonder to what extent we are achieving the goals of uh, being in a responsive system. As as F Fatima mentioned, how are we supporting future generations? I sometimes question um, on an ongoing basis if I really am. What is the what is the results of the work that's being put forth on a day-to-day -day basis? Am I able to see that? Will I be even around to see that five, 10 years from now? Because life's a moving target. And I think as a system, we need to work on inviting chaos inviting change, inviting contrarian views and different perspectives, and figuring out how collectively, individually and collectively, we can work to demonstrate or to model for many young people, as you've mentioned, Michelle, working through differences of opinions. I, I'm seeing this on a larger scale. It's playing out um, in, our, in our communities recently. Uh, and I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, out of all of this, we also need to understand and to listen and take the time to get to know our parents. Because while it, we are in a wonderful environment that's kind of like this wonderful little play box, the sandbox, very artificial environment of protecting and nurturing, the reality is the end of the day, our students go home to families where they have very fixed mindsets of what thou shall or thou shalt not do. Those boundaries and limits are being placed on students. And so, there's a level of confusion. Um, I think students are, are experiencing and a, a level of disconnectedness. So how do we work together? How do we work to get to know and work with, work alongside with, walk alongside with our parent community 
so that we are inviting their voices, so that we are understanding their entry points. And how do we as a system then work to ensure that we are making those appropriate accommodations to hear everyone and not just a selective few? I'm almost thinking about, you know, in the spirit um, of, you know, Women's History Month and, you know, embracing our feminine, right? And, uh, you know, thinking about, well, what the aspirations for, for what would it be as a, as a identifying female in, in all the multiple forms that, that we should not, that, that femininity should not be a burden, you know, that, that, that we have to carry right that that and they can be however you choose to show your feminine side in whatever way that you want that you know it should be embraced by system by by the self uh, and that females and identifying females and even males do not present or superimpose one narrative of femininity or feminism on the system or on a group or because there are so many identities and so many narratives as we can see here of what it means to lead in the in these bodies right as as females um and you know the aspiration for all of us is that we all should be able to feel safe uh when we're walking down the street uh when we are in the spaces of schools that you know that we should have that we don't have to watch our backs uh, and worry that something is going to happen to us. Uh, that is that is an aspiration for me. When when I still hear that what happened to me in in school still happens because of the identity, because uh, you know, as a Muslim woman, a girl walking does not feel safe yet in this world, walking down the street, um, in the streets of Toronto, in, in, in global places, I, you know, that is an aspiration for me and a hope that in our little microcosm of the world, if we can, like Sulin says, create understanding, embracing, uh, you know, and affirming all, all females and, and female bodies, that that we can one day, you know, in our lifetimes, be able to hear that you know what I'm I'm okay I I feel safe you know there's um, there's it's starting but uh, it's still you know that that that's that aspiration piece Rebecca when you mentioned about uh, you know what are we what do we hope for uh, for our future. Team, I'd like to build on that because I think you raised a really good point. So as we aspire for what we, you know, ideally hope for, we can all work together to uplift and help uh, women succeed. Because when we do that, we're not just doing it for school leaders. We're actually helping all young girls and all females do well. Because every every female identifying person is a daughter. It's a mother, it's a sister, it's a grandmother, it's your neighbor. Our communities, both locally and globally, are strengthened when women succeed. So I feel like that is something that we have to, you know, help um, others remember as well. As a mother of three young adults, three young men, I was always the, the only one I... as a, be, 
the only female in my household and being surrounded by different energy at home, I always knew that, you know, what I do at home, what I do at work, I'm being watched. I'm being watched by my children at home. I'm being watched by my children at school. And the decisions that I make matter because it makes a difference, small and big. And um, I always say that leader, leading is a risk and leading is a gift. And I ask myself every single day, am I willing to take the risk to do the right thing because it is the right thing to do? And I know that nothing changes if nothing changes. So I need to do the right thing for the kids in my care. And at the end of the day, before I go to sleep, I ask myself, can I sleep with the integrity that I made the right decision centering the needs of kids? And if I say yes, then I sleep a little bit more in peace. I stopped waking up at night when my children are coming in and out, raising three teenagers a few years ago and going into today. It's um, it's been a lot of a lot of fun, and I've learned certainly learned a lot. I've learned when to let go and when not to let go, both at home and at work, of things that matter because. People notice what you do and what you don't do and what you say and what you don't say and when you say what you say, because like I said before, everything matters and everything makes a difference. And in leading in days, in days like today, in our current reality, it's a huge risk. And if I can answer the question, you know, did I do the right thing for kids? And I'm willing to pay the sacrifice a little bit um, at times to make sure that I can stand in my integrity and in my ethical core as a school leader, then that's worth it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It, it, it has been such an interesting and enriching conversation. And um, I've learned so much about friends and colleagues that I thought I knew so much about, and then you learn a little bit more. And, and you know, my admiration for you has risen even more than before. So thank you. Yes, I was going to say thank you all very much for uh, coming today, coming with your authentic selves, being a little bit vulnerable, sharing uh, very personal stories, just hearing these little pieces from, from your histories, it made me reflect that if I had have had a teacher like one of you growing up, like what my pathway would have been and how different it may have been. Um, because uh, math and science, I did not enjoy. And here, a phenomenal group of women that have shown you can succeed in math and science. <laughs> so, uh, Personally, I want to really thank you for being these leaders, for taking these chances, for leading with integrity, like Annetta said, for standing on the shoulders of your ancestors and uh, for providing hope for our future generation of students. Because I think that for the people that are listening to this podcast, uh, they will find inspiration just, just like me. So many thanks. 
Thank you for joining us for TuneIn YRDSB. Please join us next time to continue the conversation.